As we begin the message this morning, allow me to ask you a rhetorical question. And the question is this, have you ever been confused when reading the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture? I'm sure you have been, as have I. There are many things that are confusing to us because, number one, we are so far removed from that culture and the situation, and number two, we are finite and cannot comprehend all of God's ways. For example, we know from reading the book of Genesis that God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose them and their descendants. Yet, as you read through Hebrew Scripture, you are struck by the fact that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants repeatedly sinned, repeatedly messed up, and repeatedly failed. It's the constant story of Hebrew Scripture. As a result, many people who read the Old Testament today ask the question, why did God choose them? The answer is one word, grace. That's it. God chose the Jewish people because of grace. He didn't choose them because they deserve it. He didn't choose them because they are better than other people. And he didn't choose them because they are worthy. He chose them because of his sovereign grace. He chose them to be the people through whom the scriptures would come and through whom the Messiah would come and through whom he would bless the world. He chose them to be the people to whom he would eventually give the promised kingdom. God chose them and committed himself to them regardless. He made an unconditional covenant with Abraham to signify that unconditional commitment. Now that doesn't mean that he is going to take them into heaven apart from repentance and faith, but it does mean that the day will come when he will do what is necessary to bring them to repentance and faith. And it will take the horrors of the future tribulation period and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish that. Let me remind you of this in Romans chapter 11 by way of introduction to our text this morning in Mark 13. Let's begin and spend some time in Romans chapter 11 because this will give us important background for our text in Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11. And this is the end of Paul's sustained argument, which begins back in chapter 9, verse 1, and it reaches this culmination here near the end of chapter 11. Notice what Paul says in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob." For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God 
are irrevocable. As you can see from reading through those few verses, Paul believed and taught that there is coming a day in which Israel will be saved and restored to her position of privilege and blessing. For now, Israel has been judicially blinded and hardened because of their stubbornness and unbelief. That's what Paul says in verses 7 through 10 of this chapter. So the question that naturally comes to mind is this. How long will Israel's hardening last? How long is it going to be this way? Verse 25 answers the question. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul begins by using his common phrase, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant. Whenever Paul used that phrase, it was his way of drawing attention to the importance of what he is saying. So the fact that he uses that phrase here in verse 25 tells us that it is very important for us to understand these verses. Sadly, many Christians do not understand these verses because many Christians believe that God is completely done with the people of Israel. They believe that the people of Israel have no place in the future plan of God. Some even teach that the church has become Israel. They say we are the new Israel, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. Beloved, please hear this. There is absolutely no way you can understand these verses and many others in Scripture if you believe the church has become Israel because all the way through this chapter, Paul says that Israel is under judicial hardening and blindness as a result of their refusal to believe the gospel. In light of that fact, how can anyone say that the church is Israel? The church is made up of those who have believed the gospel. Israel has not believed the gospel. And that's what Paul is discussing in this 11th chapter. John Murray, who is a very scholarly amillennialist, that is, someone who does not believe in a future kingdom for Israel, said this, and I quote, It should be apparent from the proximate and less proximate contexts in this portion of the epistle that it is exegetically impossible to give to the term Israel in this verse any other denotation than that which belongs to the term throughout this chapter. There is the sustained contrast between Israel and the Gentiles as has been demonstrated in the exposition preceding. What other denotation could be given to Israel in the preceding verse? It is. Now listen to what he says. He is right on. It is of ethnic Israel Paul is speaking, and Israel could not possibly include Gentiles. In that event, the preceding verse would be reduced to absurdity. End quote. And he is absolutely right. Paul is talking about ethnic Israel in these verses, and God's plan for ethnic Israel in the future. Now, some people try to get around that by pointing back to chapter 9, verse 6, and they say, well, Paul is just, he's just simply referring to the elect within Israel or the true Israel. He's not talking about ethnic Israel. Again, quoting Murray, and let me remind you, he's an amillennialist. 
Quoting Murray, he says that interpretation, quote, is not tenable for several reasons. Number one, while it is true that all the elect of Israel, the true Israel, will be saved, this is so necessary and patent a truth that to assert the same here would have no particular relevance to what is the apostles' governing interest in this section of the epistle. Number two, the salvation of all the elect of Israel affirms or implies no more than a salvation of a remnant of Israel in all generations, but verse 26 brings to a climax a sustained argument that goes far beyond that doctrine. And then number three, verse 26 is in close sequence with verse 25. The main thesis of verse 25 is that the hardening of Israel is to terminate and that Israel is to be restored in a word. Now listen, this is his, this is his quote, his direct statement. In a word, it is the salvation of the mass of Israel that the apostle affirms, end quote. That is quite a statement coming from an amillennialist. It is the salvation of the mass of Israel that the apostle affirms. You see, Paul is talking about national ethnic Israel being restored to a position of blessing and privilege after they have been brought to repentance and faith. And because Paul wants us to understand what he is teaching, because Paul wants us to get it, he grabs our attention with the phrase, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. It's his way of saying, I want you to get this. It's important. Contrary to what some Christians believe today, that, well, this stuff isn't important. Whatever you believe about the future and Israel, no, that's not that important. Paul would disagree. This is important. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. The word mystery here in this verse does not refer to something that is hard to understand or something that is baffling. It refers to something that was not revealed in the Old Testament but has now been revealed in the New Testament. And what Paul is referring to specifically here in Romans 11 is how long Israel's hardening will last. God had chosen not to reveal the length of Israel's hardening but here in verse 25, the Holy Spirit reveals that fact. He states it. He says, Israel will remain hardened to the truth of the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, Israel, the people of Israel, will be in a state of spiritual hardness until the last Gentile in the church age has been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing now. His focus today is not on the Jewish people as a whole. During this present age, some individual Jews are being saved. And in these chapters, Paul has been referring to them as the remnant. A remnant. That's why Paul says Israel's hardening is in part. Not in whole, it's in part. There are a few Jewish people who are saved. Some individual Jews are being saved in this day and age. But for the most part, this is primarily a time when God is saving Gentiles and building his church with Gentiles. So Israel's hardened spiritual condition will continue until the very last Gentile has been saved that God has purposed to save. Then, during the seven-year tribulation period, God will again focus his program on the people of Israel to bring them to repentance and to restore them to their place of blessing. Israel has not been in that place of blessing for thousands of years now. 
The people of Israel are not at the center of God's saving program right now because the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. And the capital city of Israel, which is Jerusalem, does not occupy the place of prominence that it will one day have under Christ because right now it is under the times of the Gentiles. But once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that is, once God has saved all the Gentiles he has purposed to save in the church age, God will turn back to Israel to begin ending the times of the Gentiles. But Satan will try to thwart God's plan. According to Revelation 12, during the tribulation period, Satan will attempt to destroy Israel. According to, uh, uh, according to Zechariah 13, 8, the indication is that two-thirds of the Jewish population will die during that time. In Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no, nor ever shall be. There will be satanic persecution, natural catastrophes, unprecedented demonic activity, and much of it will be directed against Israel. That is why Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, It will be the time of Jacob's trouble. God will protect and preserve the nation to save them. In Zechariah 13, 9, God says, And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will test them as gold is tested, and they shall call on my name. I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. God will use the intense suffering of Israel to bring the people to repentance. And that's why in verse 26, Paul can say, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. The first phrase here in this verse, verse, all Israel will be saved, doesn't mean that every Jew who has ever lived will be saved. It is referring to all the Jews who are alive when Christ returns, as is evidenced by the quote that follows. F.F. Bruce put it this way, all Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where where it need not mean every Jew without a single exception, but Israel as a whole. We understand that kind of expression. For example, Matthew 3, 5 says of John the Baptist, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. Well, now we understand that doesn't mean that every single last person in Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around the Jordan went to see John the Baptist. It means Israel as a whole, the mass of the people went out there. In a similar way, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, we have to understand that expression the way it was used in his day to refer to Israel as a whole. So the point is this. God will use the suffering of the tribulation period to bring the people of Israel to repentance. Look at the frightening description of this event back in Ezekiel 20. You can hold your finger here in Romans 11 if you want. We'll come back to it. But go to... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. After Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, Ezekiel chapter 20. Beginning in verse 33. 
And notice the intensity with which God speaks here in this, in this section. As I live, verse 33 of Ezekiel 20, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face, just as I pleaded my face with your father, or case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord." That is hair-raising language when you hear God speak that way. He says he is going to purge out the rebels and then save all of Israel. Israel's hardening will be broken, and their blindness will be removed. Now back to Romans 11 before we turn to our text in Mark 13. So the Lord Jesus is going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob as Paul quotes here in Romans eleven twenty six. In fact, notice that the word will is used two times in verse 26 in the quote, three times total, because verse 26 says, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This will happen. It is certain because it isn't dependent on the will of the people of Israel, it is dependent on God's will. He will bring them to repentance and take away their sins. Why is God going to do this? The answer is simply because he said he would. In verse 27, For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is going to do these things because it's part of the covenant he made with Israel. Isaiah 59 refers to this covenant. So does Jeremiah 31. Listen to these words. I'll just read them to you from Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. The first thing to notice about this covenant is how specific God is concerning whom he is talking about. He is talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He is talking about the people he brought out of the land of Egypt. Let me say it plainly. He's talking about the Jewish people, not the church. Now, we know from the New Testament that we get to be partakers of the spiritual aspects of the New Covenant. But the New Covenant has more than just spiritual aspects. It has land aspects and security aspects which apply specifically to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And what is God going to do with these people? Well, he tells us, 
Verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, he says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Obviously, you understand this hasn't happened yet. Are we living in a time when it's no longer necessary to tell people about the Lord? Obviously not. But there is coming a day in which God will so thoroughly redeem Israel that it will no longer be necessary to evangelize any Jews. God says, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now you can see why Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. Isaiah 11:9 says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord will lift Israel's blindness to fulfill the word of his covenant. God will fulfill his covenant because God's integrity is the issue. God's trustworthiness is the issue. God is not going to do these things for the people of Israel because they deserve it. They don't deserve it any more than you or I deserve God's salvation. But God is going to fulfill his covenant because he said he would. In fact, to make the point even further, in Romans 11, Paul admits the fact that at the time he wrote these words, the Jewish people were the enemies of the gospel. And by the way, that hasn't changed very much still to this day. But Paul, at the time he wrote these words, he says this in Romans eleven twenty eight: 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. If you know the book of Acts, then the first part of this verse needs no explanation because it was almost always the Jewish people who were the enemies of the gospel. They, they tracked Paul down. Just Wednesday night, I spoke at a campus group through Acts 17, and we noted that the Jews tracked Paul down for 46 miles to the next city to stop him from preaching the gospel. So it was almost always the Jewish people who were the enemies of the gospel. So the question comes, then why in the world, if they are the enemies of the gospel, that much against the gospel... Why does God say he's going to restore them to their place of privilege and blessing? Why? The answer is the last phrase in verse 28. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In spite of the fact that the Jewish people have been the enemies of the gospel, God will break their hardness of heart because of God's promises to their fathers. Israel remains the elect nation, not because they deserve that position, but rather because of the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Today, beloved, if you know anything about um, uh, modern politics today, the land of Israel, today Israel is an enemy of the gospel, but they are still beloved of God. You say, I don't understand that. Neither do I. And neither do I understand how God could love us when we were his enemies. But that's what Romans 5 says. God loved us when we were enemies. God still loves Israel as enemies of the gospel. 
God promised the Jewish patriarchs and fathers that he would make them a blessed nation. God's covenant with Abraham was unconditional, and many of God's promises to the fathers were unconditional. They are not based on Israel's worthiness. They are based on God's trustworthy character and grace. God called Israel into existence, and he bestowed on them numerous gifts, so it is certain that God will fulfill his promises. As Paul says here in Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, 4, for, let me explain this to you further. For, he says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God cannot and will not go back on his commitment to Israel any more than he would go back on his commitment to you and me. When God chose Israel, he, be, he became committed to saving them and blessing them. That's why he called them into existence. That's why he graciously gave them so many gifts. And this verse, verse 29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Literally, it reads this way. For not repented of are the grace gifts and the calling of God. Not repented of. In other words, God has never repented concerning his choice of Israel. He's never said, oh man, I didn't realize how stiff-necked they were going to be, how stubborn, I, I need to repent of that. No, no. He is just as committed to fulfilling his purposes with them as he has ever been. And that commitment is what is behind our text in Mark chapter 13. So let's turn to where we have been studying for several weeks now, to Mark chapter 13. And let's look further at what Jesus said about his second coming. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. <clears throat> Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. As you can see from reading through these verses, Jesus clearly tells us when this event will take place. He says in verse 24, it will be after that tribulation. That tribulation that he's just been talking about in the preceding verses. He has been describing the coming tribulation period for several verses now. All of this was prompted by a question from the disciples back in verse 3. They asked Jesus to tell them about the consummation of all things. It's almost certain that they weren't thinking about a second coming, but they did understand that whenever Jesus would come forth in his glory as the King and the Messiah, that would end the present age and usher in the kingdom age. They knew that much. So they asked Jesus when this would happen. Jesus proceeded to answer their question by telling them that his coming in glory to usher in the kingdom would be preceded by a time of severe trial and persecution for the Jewish people. It will be so severe that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. This time of unspeakable persecution will begin 
when the abomination of desolation takes place. When that event happens in the temple, Jesus warned those who are in Judea, the Jewish people, to flee to the mountains. It's going to take supernatural intervention for the Jewish people to survive the Antichrist's attempts at annihilation. But they will survive. They will not only be saved physically, they will be saved spiritually because they will finally be brought to repentance and faith. All that will culminate with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to end this present age and to usher in the promised kingdom. That is the focus of these few verses we just read. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. When it is time for Jesus to come in blazing glory and splendor, God is going to turn out all the lights in heaven to get the world's attention and to provide a black backdrop for the glorious appearing that is about to take place. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and even the stars will fall. In addition to all this, there's going to be a massive heaven quake. You say, what's a heaven quake? It's like a violent earthquake, but it takes place in the sky. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. All this commotion will naturally direct people's attention to the sky. Everybody's going to be looking up. When God turns out all the lights and shakes the heavens, people are going to be focusing, focusing their attention on the sky to see what is happening. And that is exactly what God wants. Because God wants everyone to see what is going to happen next. And what is going to happen next? Verse 26, then... Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. That's what is going to take place after that tribulation. Jesus is going to come in blazing glory and splendor. Which, by the way, is another reason that we know that this was not all fulfilled in A.D. 70, which some people try to say. After A.D. 70, did Jesus come back in blazing glory and splendor? No. After A.D. 70, 1.1 million Jews were killed, and the rest were scattered out of Israel in the diaspora, and they were dispersed from Israel for 2,000 years. So Jesus is going to come in blazing glory and splendor after that tribulation. The coming of Jesus in majesty and magnificence is the sign that this present age has come to an end, and he is about to usher in the next age, which is the kingdom age. This is such a significant event that God is going to make sure that no one misses it. Matthew's wording of this event is a little different. Matthew says this. He records it this way. All the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. To say that this will be a spectacular event would be a gross understatement. There's a sense in which it is beyond description. The question is often asked, how will it be possible for everyone on planet earth to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven since one side of the earth can't see what's happening on the other side of the earth? I don't know the answer to that question. 
So I'll let the Lord worry about that one. Maybe part of the answer is that there are televisions all around the world and, and cell phones all around the world and satellites all around the world so that live shots can be see, seen everywhere at the same time. Or maybe part of the answer is that Jesus will come in the heavens and will circle the earth with extreme swiftness. After all, he compares his coming to lightning in Matthew 24, 27. I don't know how it will be accomplished, but I do know that it will happen. Because Jesus said, All the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is why back in verses 21 through 23, Jesus gave a warning to Jewish people living in the tribulation period not to believe the claims of all the false messiahs who will arise during that time. He tells them, if someone says, here is the Messiah, or he's over there somewhere, he's out in the wilderness, or he's in the room off to the side, there's no reason to believe those assertions because it will be obvious when the true Messiah is on the scene. He's not going to slip in quietly. He's not going to come secretly. When he comes, it will be in blazing glory and splendor and majesty and brilliance. And all will see him. What will be the response? Matthew 24, 30 says that all the tribes of the earth will mourn. To you, that probably sounds like a strange response. Because if you know the Lord and love the Lord, then you would be rejoicing at his coming. But when Jesus returns to this earth, the vast majority of the people on it will not love him. The book of Revelation makes that clear. People will be clenching their fists at the Lord during the tribulation period, and they won't be glad to see him when he returns. Unbelievers who are alive during the tribulation period will know, I catch this, they will know that the earth is experiencing divine judgment with all of these plagues and everything, but it won't bring them to repentance. Revelation 16.9 says they blaspheme the name of God. Revelation 16.11 says they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains. Revelation 16.21 says men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail. That will be the attitude of many of the people on the earth during the tribulation period. So it's no wonder they will mourn when they see Jesus coming in the clouds. They will mourn the fact that he is going to win and not their leader, the Antichrist. But I also believe there will be another kind of mourning from another group of people. The unbelievers are going to mourn the fact that they and their leader are defeated. But the people of Israel will mourn in repentance because they will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. In my opinion, this is when Romans eleven twenty six will take place. And so all Israel will be saved. Back up for just a moment to Zechariah chapter 12. It's the second to the last book in the Old Testament in our English Bibles. So it's almost easier to find Matthew and just go back to Zechariah just prior to Malachi. Zechariah chapter 12. Verse 10. Notice what God says here. And by the way, this whole context, you could read the whole context. It's about the tribulation and 
and, and, and all of the events we've been studying for weeks now. And notice in connection with this, verse 10 says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. And skip down to chapter 13, verse 1, where it says, In that day, we're talking the same day, the day that they are mourning, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a fountain for sin and for uncleanness. This is the verse behind the well-loved hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The source of this fountain is the one who was pierced. The people of Israel will look on the one they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn, and they will be saved. But not everyone on earth will be saved because some will persist in their rebellion. Now back to Mark 13 as we close this morning. Back to our text there and Jesus' teaching. Jesus says after this event, after he comes in the clouds with power and great glory, verse 27, and then he will send his angels... And gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. All the elect are gathered together from heaven and earth because this is the inauguration of the promised kingdom. All believers will be gathered together before the Lord, whether they were in heaven or on earth. When the kingdom begins, it will be composed exclusively of believers, as Jesus explains in Matthew 25. All unbelievers will be excluded. The sheep and goat judgment will, dis- will exclude all the, the goats. Only believers will be present to go into the kingdom. Some of the believers will be present in glorified bodies because they have already been in heaven with the Lord, as this verse indicates. He's going to gather the elect from heaven. And some of the believers will be present in their natural bodies because they were living here on earth through the tribulation period and embraced Messiah Jesus during that time and made it to the end. Beloved, this this is the culmination and consummation of the present age. This is it. This is where everything is headed. And this is where it will climax. The disciples of Jesus back in verse 3 said, to Jesus, tell us what is the consummation of all things. And Jesus said, this is it. This is the consummation of all things. This is how this present age is going to end and give way to the next age, which is the kingdom age. Now let me ask you, will you be assembled before the Lord Jesus when this takes place? Do you know him personally and do you love him genuinely? 
Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? If not, I urge you to do so because the day is coming when it will be too late. That's not a threat. It's just a warning. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes here in the last two or three minutes of our time together, think about, contemplate what we have seen this morning in God's Word. It is a marvelous picture, just a marvelous display of God's grace to fulfill His plan and fulfill His promises, to do what He said He would do. It's a reminder to us that God is trustworthy. God is not only trustworthy in relation to the promises He made to Israel, God is trustworthy in relation to all the promises He has made to you and to me as His church. So we should be encouraged when we look at something like what we've seen this morning to know that God is totally trustworthy. God is totally faithful and reliable. When He says something, when He says He's going to do something, He will do it. And Jesus answered the disciples' questions about the consummation of all things by giving them this tremendous, this marvelous picture, this overview of where this present age is going. It will end with a severe time of tribulation, and it will culminate in the second coming of Jesus in the clouds with power and great glory. This is what Jesus taught his people to pray about. He said, pray in this manner, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we pray for. That's what we long for. For Jesus to come back in power and glory and to be acknowledged as the king he really is. Are you rightly related to him, the king? Have you, as his subject, Submitted yourself to him as your own personal king. The king is coming. The king is coming. Are you ready? Father, as we close our, not only the message, but our entire service, worship time together this morning, thank you for encouraging our hearts with this marvelous picture from the words of Jesus here in Mark chapter 13, as well as the words of your prophets, whether it be Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Zechariah or the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, you have devised such a marvelous plan. No wonder Paul closes Romans 11 by saying, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his instructor because your ways are unsearchable, unfathomable. And we just stand in awe as we consider them. So challenge our hearts with this truth this morning. Encourage our hearts. And we would especially pray for anyone here among us or anyone hearing these words this very moment who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, who has not submitted to Christ as their King. May your Holy Spirit be pleased to use your truth to draw that man, that, that woman, young person, whoever it is, to surrender to Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose precious and exalted name we pray. Amen.